Good morning. I always love new members. Today was no exception, particularly Steve's comment that he loves us more than his own dear family. And so to his family that are probably watching online, even now, or recording, um, he does love you as well, and we're trying to help him with this. (laughs) It is so good to be here and celebrating things as a family. We are the sad ones that didn't get to go away over the long weekend. I'm sorry for that. I hope you do get a break sometime soon, but it is a joy to be around God's Word. So turn with me in your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter. If you are new to Sovereign Grace, we are presently on a series on 1 Peter, and what a letter it is. It is written by the Apostle Peter, one of the twelve And he's writing it to Christians who are living in Asia Minor, which is today modern-day Turkey. And these individuals in modern-day Turkey have become Christians, and they are being maligned, they are being persecuted, and they are being slandered. See, once upon a time, these Gentile Christians used to be just like the Gentiles. They used to be just like those around them in modern-day Turkey. They used to be enduring and enjoying sensuality and passions and drunkenness. But at some time or another, these Gentiles have become Christians. Their lives have been radically changed as they follow Jesus. And the consequence for that is their friends and family have now been put off by their strangeness. They don't like it. They're pushing away from them. And they are the very ones maligning them and persecuting them and slandering them. They are, in effect, living like exiles in a foreign land. What they used to know as the norm has now become difficult. And so Peter writes to them to encourage them in their faith. That's what chapter 1 is all about. He wants to remind them who they are in Christ and what this all means, and why this suffering is taking place. And he wants to encourage them in how the Lord feels about them, and how he is present with them. And then in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12, which we're going to be looking at today, we come to the very point of transition in the book. These are two really important verses. They are indeed the threshold, if you will having already helped them see that they are exiles and sojourners in this foreign land, that heaven is their home. He now starts to transition them into a house where he wants to help them see what does it mean to look, to look like and live in a world where you don't belong? How should we think about government? How should we think about singleness? How should we think about marriage and finances and work? How should we think about these things while we're in this world where we don't belong? And these two verses form the threshold into that house that he's going to be walking us around for the remainder of the letter. These verses then are really important ones. I've called this message War and Witness. And let's read together 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. 
Well, Lord, as we gather around your word again this morning, we are aware that you, almighty God, King of kings and Lord of lords, you are addressing us. Lord, would we receive this in the tone to which you give us it? Would we receive it with care and grace of your loving instruction to us as exiles here in this earth? Lord, help us to understand it. Help us to grasp it. Would our lives and hearts be softened to your word this morning? And would we both hear it and heed it for your glory? In Jesus' precious name, amen. You know, for over 15 months now, Ukraine, as you know, has been at war. It doesn't take long when you turn on the news or you read it in your paper. It doesn't take long to find some article or some photos about Ukraine, does it not? Tanks and guns and missiles and explosions. Ruins that have been bombed to death. People dying in this dear country. It doesn't take long to realize that without a doubt, there is a nation in our world right now at war. And for the last 15 and a half months, we've had the privilege of partnering with a sister church in Sovereign Grace in Dnipro. Dnipro is... is over um, on the east near Russia. And so when people are actually evacuating the front line, they're often going through Dnipro and then going west towards safety. This church, is, is, the room is about the same size as ours. And when, they, when the war started, many people in the church actually moved, but 50 people remained. And for the last 15 and a half months, those 50 people have been working 24 hours a day, seven days a week to care for refugees coming through. They bought a whole load of mattresses they put out in the hall. They care for them as they sleep. They feed, them. They feed over 500 people a week just to care for them, and they seek to tell them about Jesus. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had an email from Michael, who's the pastor there, just letting us know that a lady had given her life to the Lord. She had been saved by the Lord from a missile. She was saved actually in a basement, and she was convinced after that that the Lord was on a case. She came to church, and he had the privilege of sharing the gospel with her. And helping to see what God has saved you from physically, he wants to save you from spiritually. She gave her life to the Lord, got baptized, became a member of the church. You know, the Lord is, is on the move. That's just one example of many examples of people in Ukraine coming to know the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And we've had the privilege and continue to have the privilege of partnering with this church and helping them by the grace of God through finances to do what they are doing for the glory of the Lord. And yet what they are facing is all because of one thing, that they are at war. It is unpleasant for them. It is not like for them. They are losing friends and family. There are tanks. There are explosions. There are people coming to the church all the time in combat gear. Why? Because they are at war, and everybody knows it. And as Peter looks us in the eye this morning, in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, He wants to help us see that as Christians, we are at war too. See, the harsh reality is that in the leafy suburbs of Sydney, we can be completely unaware that we're at war at all. We're fine, thanks. I mean, it's a long weekend. Go to the beach. This will be fun. Go on a farm stay. Woo! You know, we, we don't feel like we're at war at all. I mean, I've got a nice house and nice friends, and I just went out for a meal. I think this is peacetime. This is sweet. But Peter wants to explain to us that, listen, this is not peacetime at all. 
that you as Christians are at war. And your foe is not some enemy that is out there that you can see coming. Your enemy is the enemy within. The passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. And how we fight in this war makes a massive difference to the healthiness of our souls and the effectiveness of our witness. These verses could not be more crucial and understanding what it means to live for the glory of God in a foreign land, knowing that heaven is our home. And so I have three points this morning. Number one, our identity. Number two, our war. And then number three, our witness. But I really do come to it just with one hope. And it's the hope that we would all realize afresh this morning that as Christians, we are at war. There is a war raging that we need to be aware of for the healthiness of our souls and the effectiveness of our witness. Listen, none of you here this morning as Christians have got an exemption from this. When you became Christians, you were conscripted into the war for the rest of your life. The question now is whether you're fighting in it or not, or whether you're just getting lambasted and don't even realize. I hope and pray that we all realize it this morning and engage in the fight. Number one then, our identity. The very first word that he uses in verse 11 is indeed a loaded word when he says, beloved. I love that. He's helping us know how the Lord feels about us. But more than that, before looking forward to what that means as his beloved, he's using it as a conclusionary word to everything he said prior to this moment. Beloved. And he's talking particularly about our identity in Christ. It's a loaded word that has all those things in it. And my friends, what an identity in Christ we have, do we not? We are told in chapter 1 verse 3 that we have been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading, and which is being kept in heaven for you. Is that not good news? He's telling us, for you as Christians, this is definitely not the best. The best is yet to come. As Christians, there is the heavenly realms, and there are gifts and prizes that are being saved for you that are imperishable and undefiled and unfading. And guess what? You are being kept for them. That's what he tells us in chapter 1 verse 5. You are also being kept and guarded by God himself for that day when heaven will be your eternal home. You have been born again to a living hope. That's why your sojourners and exiles here, you don't really belong here. In fact, actually, as Christians, if you totally feel like you belong in Sydney, then in light of eternity, that doesn't make sense at all. There should be numerous moments where we walk around and just go, I don't belong here. The way people are talking, the way people are acting, the things that they're saying, I just don't belong. I don't fit. He's telling you that's exactly the reality. You are born again to a living hope to an inheritance that is undefiled and imperishable and unfading, that is being kept for you. In chapter 2, verse 9, he therefore says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. Isn't that wonderful? As Christians, you have been chosen before the foundation of the earth. 
Have you ever thought about what it was like before there was an earth? Nothing. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And already they had you on their minds. That when we create all this, we're going to save them. Because I love them. Chosen before the foundation of the earth. A chosen race. Declared then by God to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Our standing before God is incredible. You know, in the Old Testament, it was only the priests that could go into the presence of God and, and worship Him and give sacrifices. And it was only the great high priest one day a year that could go beyond the curtain into the Holy of Holies and actually engage with God. Now... Through faith in Jesus, we're all a royal priesthood and we're all a holy nation. So the curtain has been torn in two and we can just go into the presence of God. It's fine. If anything, we get totally used to it. But it is a dramatic reality that you have been declared holy by God, declared justified by God, meaning that you can approach the Lord. And when you do approach Him, we read here in verse 9 that we are a people of His own possession. It says in Exodus chapter 19 that actually we are his treasured possession. Isn't that beautiful? You want to know how God feels about you? You are his treasured possession. I have five children who I adore. He has thousands of children. And he says, I love every single one of you. You are my treasured possession. And then in chapter 2 verse 10 we read, Once you are not a people... But you now are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Listen, how encouraging must this have been to the original readers? Imagine the scene. You have become a Christian. Everybody is rejecting you. They are slandering you. They are persecuting you. They are maligning you. It is a nightmare for them to be living in what is today modern day Turkey at this time. And then they receive a letter saying, hey, listen. I know it's tough, but remember this, you were born again to a living hope that is being kept in heaven for you. You are God's chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. You are his treasured possession. Once upon a time, you were not part of the people of God, but now you are. You've received mercy. He is going to save you by his grace. He will carry you home. And what does that all mean? What it means is you are beloved. There's a lot put in that verse. (laughs) This is your identity. This is how he feels about you. You're beloved by God himself. How encouraging must that have been to the original readers and likewise how encouraging it should be to us. David Helm in his commentary says, Beloved, this particular word and it alone captures the ascendant affections now rising within the hearts of Peter's readers. And beloved is the honored title that accompanies everyone whose spiritual identity and eternal destination are wrapped up in Christ. How beautiful is that? My friends, are you aware of how God feels about you? My experience after two decades of pastoral ministry is that when suffering comes and difficulty comes, that is the time that Satan uses to attack us. With He feels nothing towards you. He's left you. He's abandoned you. So how kind 
of God himself to address a group of people who are suffering and say, I haven't abandoned you at all. You are my beloved, chosen before the foundation of the earth, born again to a living hope, my treasured possession. You are my beloved. And it's as he shares that and as he says that, that in effect in this letter, sirens begin to go off. Missiles begin to be heard. Red flags are being thrown into the book. Because he wants to help us see that as his beloved, you and I are at war. And that's my second point. Our war. Read with me at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Having reminded us then of who we are in Christ, how we have been born again to a living hope, how we are God's treasured possession, how that means we are merely sojourners and exiles here in this earth. We are all in effect just renting here on this earth. We don't belong here. We belong in the heavenly realms with the Lord God himself. He wants to remind us, though, that while we are here as his followers, we are at war. At war with what? The enemy within. The passions of the flesh wage war against the soul. You know, the Apostle Paul talks about this in Galatians 5 verse 17. This is what he says. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. He's not talking there about an unbeliever. He's talking about a believer. An unbeliever, there is no war going on. It's just flesh. But when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And guess what happens? A war starts taking place. And the Apostle Paul was very aware of this war in his own life. In Romans 7 verses 21 to 24, he says, So I find it a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Have you ever felt that in your own life? Who will deliver me from this body of death? There is a war going on. When I want to do the right thing and follow the Spirit, my flesh screams something else. There's a battle going on. The Apostle Paul experienced in his own life. And Peter here is taking us by a a hand and saying, listen, this is a war you're all in. You signed up for it when you became a Christian, when the Holy Spirit came to live in your life. You became at war. And my friends, soberingly and dauntingly, the stakes of this war could not be higher. See, when you became a Christian, like for me, we were in that very moment freed from the power and penalty of sin. What a happy and wonderful reality. When you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the penalty of sin was paid for in full. When he said, it is finished, it was indeed finished for you. 
In the right sense, he gave his life so that you could be forgiven of all your sin. There is nothing more for you to pay. He has paid the penalty of your sin, which is why we can say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because you've been forgiven of your sin. And the power of that sin has been broken in your life. The chains have been broken. Sin no longer has dominion over you. You are no longer chained to anything. And yet what the Bible also makes clear is though the power and penalty of sin have been broken, we are not free from its presence and influence. How long were you a Christian before you discovered that? For me, it was about 20 minutes. You think that just everything's going to change. And it doesn't take that long to realize, well, I'm aware I'm forgiven and I'm aware the power's been broken, but those temptations... They're still there. That's what he's talking about here in terms of the passions of the flesh. The passions of the old self. The temptation and tendency then towards greed and envy, even as a Christian. And sometimes you shake your head at yourself, thinking this is ridiculous that I feel these things. But you do. Because the passions of the flesh remain. Greed and envy. Temptation towards comfort and ease. We hear about heroes of the faith all the way around the world and we'd love to be like them, but no thanks. Because actually I want to be comfortable. I want it to be easy. The temptation towards anger and rage. We know it's wrong, but we feel it rising up in our hearts. The temptation towards lust and idolatry. The guarding of the eyes that at times can be difficult. And that covetous heart, as John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories and we're aware there are idols that it keeps churning out. That's what he's talking about in terms of these passions of the flesh. He details them at the start of 1 Peter 2 and he's actually going to talk at length about them in 1 Peter chapter 4. These passions of the flesh, they're still there, aren't they? The presence and influence them in their lives, they are still there. And what a sobering and serious reality this is because, my friends, the stakes of this war could not be higher. Rabbi Zacharias put it this way. He says, sin will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. It's so true. Sin, my friends, is always guilty of false advertising. As was one commentator said, evil tastes good, but take note, evil always leads to nausea and vomiting. So it does. Sin promises so much. Just come with me. It'll be okay. Those passions of the flesh, they're just you. You can't help it. Come on. I'll help you with this. I'll help you with your life. The problem is it's guilty of false advertising. It takes you further than you wanted to go. It keeps you longer than you wanted to stay and costs you way more than you wanted to pay. You may think that half a poison pill won't kill me. But in reality, it will damage you more than you ever thought possible. Your sin is at war with your soul. And it does damage. Well, what is this damage? Well, in Hebrews 3 verse 13, we discover that this damage, frighteningly, is the hardening of your soul. It hardens. 
See, sin is deceitful above all things. It deceives us into thinking that it is the source of true happiness. That it'll be okay. And it will deceive you into thinking that you'll be okay if you just dabble with it a little bit. I mean, it won't be a problem. You'll be able to keep it contained. This is how you'll get through life. It's just like a drink on the side. It's your crutch for managing with life. You can follow Jesus and still dabble with some of these things. It will be okay. It deceives you. But what it's not telling you is that it will harden your soul. How does it do it? Or gradually and slowly. Doing it fast would become obvious to you. So it does it gradually and slowly. Before you know it, you start to feel a diminished appetite to spend time with the Lord. You don't want to read your Bible like you once did. You don't really want to pray like you once did. You used to love going to church. It was great to be with your friends and your family. But, well, I'm a bit busier these days. Other things have come up, you know. It's just not as attractive as it used to be. And singing, I remember when I used to love singing. But now I sing, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Just not feeling it, you know. Not feeling it like I once used to. And then as you continue with your life, you find that your conscience is just less sensitive to sin. Things, things that once upon a time you would have never thought about doing, now you just do. And you don't feel any sorrow over them. You don't confess them anymore because you don't even consider them big deals. And over time, the harsh reality is, is your sin hardens your soul. You grow increasingly unamazed by grace. And unamazed by Jesus at all. And it's tragic. But that, my friends, is how it works. Your sin and those passions of the flesh are at war against your soul. They want to harden your soul. And so Peter writes in verse 11 and says, Beloved, I urge you, hear his tone, hear his intensity. I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh. They will do you damage. They will take you further than you wanted to go. They will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And they will cost you more than you wanted to pay. Brothers and sisters, I urge you, abstain from them. Hear his intensity and tone. He's caring for them here. You don't belong here. So don't start behaving as if you think you do. Because they will damage you. David Helm, in his commentary, says, We must abstain from the malicious desires of our mind that would feast on others' carcasses to be devoured. And we must renounce our tongue when it brings forth the dead wood of slander. Further, we must learn to cover ourselves when tempted to go nakedly into the presence of an illusion that physical pleasure is the end of all things. To abstain from the passions of the flesh requires us to live with a renewed mind, a disciplined tongue, and a controlled body. And abstain we must. For in Christ we are tethered to heaven and are merely just wanderers on this earth. Isn't that good? My friends, we're in a war. 
And we must abstain from the passions of the flesh. Why? Because they will do you damage. They are at war with your soul. They will harden your soul. The stakes could not be higher. So Sovereign Grace, here's my question. How are you going at fighting in this war? What is this fight looking like for you? Are you even aware that you are in a war? Or has Satan so distracted you that you just think, I'm fine. My life is like the Easter show all the time. You know, what is going on? Are you living aware that you are in a war? Listen, how are you going at applying verses like Colossians 3 verse 5? That says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly among you. Put to death. It's a war strategy. It's something, listen, go after this, kill this. Why? Because it's at war with your soul. Put it to death. How are you going with that? What are you putting to death right now? What are you actively going after? How are you going at applying verses like Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24, that tells us to put off the old self and be renewed in our minds and put on the new self for the glory of the Lord, knowing that everything's changed for us now as sojourners and exiles here in this earth? How are you going with that? Brothers and sisters, how are you going at fighting in this war? Because the stakes could not be higher. The passions of your flesh have a wonderful plan for your life. And it is very different to the plan that God has for your life. You must do battle. Otherwise your sin hardens your soul. But that's not the only reason why we need to be at war with our flesh. There's also something else at stake, and it is our witness, which is my final point, number three, our witness, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Oh, how wonderful is that? It is so important that we fight in this war. Why? Well, first and foremost, because of who we are in Christ. We are beloved. We are born again to a living hope. This is not our home. We are being kept for heaven. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, the beloved of God himself. It is also so important that we engage in this war for the healthiness of our souls. If we want our souls to be healthy, we must engage with the war because the passions of the flesh are seeking to kill the healthiness of our souls. But there's something else. It is also important that we fight in this war because of the effectiveness of our witness. No fight, no witness. Because we'll be just like everybody else. We will look no different. Jerry Bridges, in his wonderful book, The Fruitful Life, says it this way. He says, have you ever thought about the fact that the way you fulfill your duties at work or the way you perform your professional services in your community or the way you operate in your friendships at school can make the teaching about God attractive? For why isn't the gospel more attractive to unbelievers today? Maybe one primary reason is the fact that in the everyday affairs of life, we Christians 
are no different from the general mass of unbelievers. Well, maybe he's right. I read that when I was about 22 years old. And I remember at the time just being really impacted about it in my own life. How am I different? Am I actually different from the world? Are my unbelieving friends actually seeing anything different in me? And I think it's something we all need to wrestle with at different times. Because I think sadly, in so many different places, for so many different Christians, they're no different. They're exactly the same. They're just totally and utterly blended in. So why would anybody then seek to find out, why are you different from me? What what is different about your life? Well, they're never going to ask it because they don't see any difference. We're just the same. But that is not the way it was meant to be. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, Jesus himself says, you are the light of the world. He's talking about us as Christians. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Isn't it beautiful? That's the way it's meant to work. He's saying, listen, live it out. Fight the good fight. Fight the flesh. Be changed from one degree of glory into another. Become more like Jesus Christ in the way we live. The good works that Peter's talking about here can also be translated as beautiful works. He's saying live in a way that looks beautiful to other people. That they actually see there's something different about the way you speak, different about your values, different in the way you are. Why? So that you are creating a platform for the gospel so that when you do share the gospel, they go, that is attractive to me, not only because of the words, but because of the way you live. You are different. Something has happened in your life that is profoundly different and it's attractive. It was one of the things, one of the many things that I loved about being at Harry and Jen's wedding this week. For the vast majority of their families, biologically, both sides do not know Jesus. But it was absolutely beautiful, not only in how they had put together the service to reflect Christ, but when both dads got up to speak, they both commented on their children's faith and said that they respected it and the difference it had clearly made in their lives. That's attractive living. Parents don't say that unless they see something different. You change. And they're on a journey. They're not there yet. But as I read this, I'm aware the platform over which the gospel can go is being laid. And this was always the way it was meant to work. And yet if we just blend in, if they just see us getting drunk like everybody else, they see our speech being just like everybody else, they never say that because you're just the same as me. The stakes in this reality could not be higher. And so as Peter begins to walk us into a room to help us understand what it looks like to live for the glory of God in light of our new identity and our new destination, he wants to help us understand that as Christians, we are all at war. 
In the leafy suburbs of Sydney, I think it's something we forget about all too quickly. Sadly, for many, they may even be completely unaware that that is the reality of our lives. But we are at war. We are at war with the enemy within. And how we fight in this war makes a profound difference to the healthiness of our souls and the effectiveness of our witness. So, Sovereign Grace, three questions then that I want you to consider this week. If you have a pen and paper, you may make note of them. I would encourage all of our gospel communities this week to go through these. If you are not a member of this church, you're not a part of a gospel community, I would recommend you become a member and become a part of a gospel community because these are going to be difficult questions to assess by yourself. And this is just a further evidence of why church community is so important. And so if it's not this church, then please, as you leave today, find another church that you can give yourself to. Because we need, we need each other. Three questions then, and here's the first. How are you going in being aware of and fighting in this war? How are you going? How are you going at being aware of and fighting in this war? Are you aware that you are in a war? Are you engaged in this war? Are you applying verses like Colossians 3 verse 5? Put to death, therefore. Think about it. Honestly assess yourself. Talk about it over lunch. Question two. How's your conduct in the world going? With neighbors, in your workplaces, in your parenting, with colleagues, with team members, for our younger members here, with the school playground. What is the conduct of your life actually looking like? Listen. If all the people you're interacting with knew about Christianity was being seen in your example, then what would they be seeing? If their whole exposure to Christianity is just you, then what are they learning about Christ? What are they learning about your faith? And then question three. How are you going and truly living out your new identity in Christ. How are you going? A truly living this out, this new identity that you have in Christ. Your new identity is being born again to a living hope. Your new identity is being part of God's chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. How are you going in that? Because that's the declaration over your life. That is the spiritual reality over your life. How are you going in that reality? Listen, my friends, this is serious and sobering stuff, is it not? I doubt I'm going to be carried aloft after this message and taken to my car. I doubt that. It's never happened to any other message either, come to think of it. But I'm aware this is serious and sobering stuff. It is designed to be by God himself. And in God's kindness, what you discover without any shadow of a doubt is, though it is serious and sobering stuff, He has given us everything we need to fight in this most important battle. First and foremostly, He has given us Himself. In Philippians 4 verse 13, 
The Apostle Paul himself, who knew this battle in his own heart, nonetheless says, For I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You often see that on NRL lists. You see him on their wristbands and you think, oh, that's really beautiful. I don't think he's talking about how well you're going to tackle today, to be honest, but good try. It's not talking about everything in life. It's talking about what he's called you to. If he's called you to something, he will enable you to do it. He has called you to fight the good fight. He has called you to wage war against your sinful self because it is waging war against you. And so he guarantees, I will help you with this. You'll be able to do all things through him who strengthens me. He has primarily given us himself. And guess what else he's given us? Something else. He's given us each other. Hebrews chapter 10. This is 23 to 25. Therefore, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and he is. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. He's aware as you are going to battle with this in your reality. You are going to need Jesus and you are going to need his believers. You are going to need brothers and sisters around you, encouraging you and spurring you on and helping you fight the good fight of faith. He's given us all that we need, my friends. And so I want to encourage you together here in Sovereign Grace Church, let's fight this war. And by his grace, let's go win. Let's win. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for the way you address us with such kindness and care and yet such directness. Lord, we are not left guessing what we are meant to be doing with our lives in this regard. And as exiles and sojourners, you could not be clearer to us as to how you want us to live. Lord, would you forgive us for times when, in reality, we are blasé about this war. As if we live in Rivendell. Nothing's happening here. Lord, thank you for drawing to our attention again that the enemy isn't primarily without. The enemy is within. We take it with us everywhere we go. And so, Lord, help us to engage in this war. And, Lord, help us, by your grace, to stand together, to strive side by side for the glories of the gospel. And, Lord, help us, by your grace, to win. And would it all be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.